You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're also joined by Dr. Ligon Duncan. Dr. Duncan is the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the John E. Richards Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology. He has authored, co-authored, contributed, or edited more than 35 books. That's a lot. That's a lot of books. Dr. Duncan and us had a great time today discussing catechism, pressing cultural and theological issues, and then we ended by talking about baptism. And we just, we came to the top of the clock and we had no more time, but I promise you, we are going to have Dr. Duncan back in here to talk about baptism because it was too much fun and we had in the conversation. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. Well, here we are. Um, it's a Thursday. What are you? Uh, is Thursday a hard day, or is it easier than Monday? You know, people talk about Wednesday as hump day, but for me, Thursday—that's the day that I, I feel like is the most drain on me. It's not Monday. Monday, I feel motivated. Right. Th- Thursday is the end of the week for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah. Monday's motivation. Lots of meetings on Monday. Kind of feels like the ministry is moving forward. <laughs> Thursday is like. I have a lot of emails to respond. Yes, to. <laughs> yeah, it feels that way for me too. Uh, it just kind of feels like, oh wow, I uh, I always set off. I think on Monday, like thinking, you know, I'm going to like chart the seas, like break new ground, do everything, and then on Thursday, I'm like, well, I didn't I do feel, it. I feel further behind than I did on Monday. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Well, hey, we we are uh, here today with Dr. Ligon Duncan. Dr. Duncan, thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Excellent. So, Dr. Duncan is uh, the chancellor. Did I get this right? For Reformed Theological Seminary. I've, I have the joy of that work and okay. have been doing it for about six years now. Okay, great. Uh, and you're also the uh, John E. Richards Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology. That's right. I've been so, teaching for RTS for 29 years now. 29 and, yeah. years. That's incredible. I didn't realize it had been that long. Yeah, started in uh, the summer of 1990. And have done that. I did that six years full time, and then I did that part time while I was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church. And Mm -hmm. then in 2012, they asked me to come back, and I did it. I did the church and the seminary for a year, and then the my predecessor got ill, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, they they needed a new chancellor, and so I stepped into those shoes. Now, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary is not a, is is it a Presbyterian or is it just a confessional school that has a high? No, it was started by Presbyterians to try and save the old, what was called colloquially the Southern Presbyterian Church, not unlike the Southern Baptist Church. We were going through the same theological issues that the SBC was going through in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And a group of Presbyterians, interestingly, very closely tied to Billy Graham and his father-in-law, L. Nelson Bell, who was a veteran Presbyterian missionary to China, uh, were working to try and recover the what was the PCUS, the okay. Old Southern Presbyterian Church. We failed. Okay. Where where the the brethren in the SBC, by God's kindness, succeeded, okay. and uh, so RTS really came out of that movement. So today, uh, we would have about half of our students would be out of some kind 
of a Presbyterian or Reformed denomination. Okay. But then the next largest slice are non-denominational and Baptist, yeah. mm-hmm. and then Anglican, okay. and then about 38 other things. Okay. So at any given <laughs> time, like you probably have 40, yeah. 45 different denominations okay. represented in the RTS student body, but all would have a high view of God, a high view of the Bible, a real commitment to the gospel, because we we're, we try to be truth in advertising. This mm-hmm. is what we're about, Bible, Reformed Theology, sure. Great Commission. That sort yeah. of sums up what we're about. Now, I have to confess to you, you may not know this, but you're actually speaking to an RTS dropout. <laughs> so, uh, But he did get a degree from a Baptist school, so what I, does that say? I, I, did, I did, I did. But let me tell you something. I, I just, the problem was, Dr. Duncan, I couldn't cut it. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm joking. I had a great, I took one class, um, History of Christian Thought, with Dr. Frame online. It was exceptional. I loved it. Uh, and uh, But I will say, I, I, all joking aside, I didn't end up getting to finish through Reformed Theological Seminary. But uh, I think that RTS has assembled one of the best. It's like it's, it's crazy how strong yes. your system is. Specifically, I'm thinking of the systematic theology faculty. Right. I know that you have exceptional faculty across the board. But the ST faculty at RTS is incredible. There's no doubt. So when, <laughs> when I was working through my dissertation, Scott Swain, was Dr. Swain was an right. incredible help for me. He has a small book called Trinity Revelation and Reading, which was just transformational for me yep. in, in my thinking about not only the doctrine of God, but how that applies to his communicative speech and how he makes himself known. Michael Allen, their, oh their project the, the, his on, book on sanctification, yep, right. yep, grounded in heaven. And then uh, they wrote a book together, uh, Reformed Catholicity, yep. which has been a, a hugely helpful book. And kind of the project that we're really trying to do here in TVCI is remind people of of kind of this this rootedness that the church has in Catholicity. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an amazing faculty. And uh, it's one of the things that gets me up in the morning to get to support and extend their influence right. and to do things that, um, that so that they don't have to do them, yeah. so that they can give themselves to the particular gifts that the Lord has given to them right. and bless the church and our students with that gifting. Yeah. One other thing I just remembered, yeah. we've, had a, we've had an RTS faculty member on here. Michael oh, Kruger. Oh, we have had Dr. Kruger yeah, on here. So we had Dr. Friend. Kruger on yeah. here, and he helped us think through ca- issues of canon. Well, there you and, go. I, I mean, mean when, was... when I was in seminary and you were studying canon and you were an evangelical, you had to read F.F. F. Bruce. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, today, you have to read Mike Kruger and Chuck Hill. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I could just go across the whole RTS oh, sure. system and point to professors that have had that kind of seminal influence. And again, I'm very thankful to, to get to serve them. Yeah. Okay, but 29 years of teaching under your belt. If you, what's your favorite thing to teach? If you only got to teach one thing, well, I mean, I, I, my my favorite course is covenant theology, mm-hmm. and I've I've probably taught that course forty five times wow. over over the years. Uh, but I mean, right now, I, I te- every year I team teach. Um, a course we call Introduction to Pastoral and Theological Studies, which is sort of Reformed Theology and Ministry 101. And I team teach it with Tim Keller. Okay. And I love How can we get into teaching this? Yeah. <laughs> that course. It's funny. I was, we were, like we were at this class. Yeah, the Gospel <laughs> Coalition last week, and Tim, Tim was, somebody was asking about the course, and he said, it's kind of like we sit down with an Arminian and we say, we'd like to have a week-long chat with you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful way of describing what we do. Wow. In that course, so I mean, I love teaching that course. I've taught the whole ST cycle. I've I've 
taught things like apologetics, ethics, history of philosophy, and Christian thought. I've, I've actually taught in every department except Old Testament uh, over over my 29 years. Wow. And so I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. But boy, do I love learning mm-hmm. when I'm preparing to teach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I found that when I'm trying to prepare to teach, that's when I do my best learning, yeah, right? Because you, you're going to be held accountable for the Absolutely. material. You know, there's surely a decision point coming, isn't there? <laughs> well, we're going to know if I know this or not here in a few minutes. Yeah, and then so everybody is. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, I don't know if you feel this, Dr. Duncan, and, and um, I, I feel like it would be fun to talk about, but I feel like Baptists kind of have a mystique around Presbyterianism. Do you guys agree with that? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like, uh, can we call it the Presbyterian mystique? I feel like that should be a movie. Well, yeah. so here's the thing. Like, I think when we're having, when we Baptists are having a bad day, mm-hmm. we tend to think yes. maybe the grass is actually greener <laughs> on the Presbyterian side of the fence. But the question I would have is, do Presbyterians ever have that day where they think maybe Baptists? Yeah. Well, well I mean, I mean, actually, because I'm, I'm in the Baptist world a lot right. in my life. And um, it does give me joy that my, brethren, my, my Baptist brethren think that the grass is greener <laughs> on our side. You know, I just think to myself, Lord, thank you that somebody thinks that it's good to be in this pool that I'm in right now. Uh, oh, you're in so, a pool in the Baptist pool? Would you say you've been immersed? Are you immersed in the pool? Yeah. As it were. Uh, so, no, I mean, I, I do get that. I, I, in fact, I tell RUF campus ministers when I meet them from time to time, I said, you know, when I, when I, meet, when I meet young, you know, sort of their tails are wagging, sharp, you know, Baptist folks that are getting ready to serve the Lord, and, and they've encountered RUF guys. They they sort of treat them like Jedi masters, <laughs> and uh, and I say, guys, you know, just just feel good about yourselves for a minute, you know, <laughs> when you're up against the challenges. Yeah, of life I think it's. A, I, I think too, it's also symptomatic of dress for the job you want because Presbyterians <laughs> they just dress better. They they're, they're uh, man, they're fresh. They're looking clean. Listen, act- I gotta say, I, I was just at TGC last week too, and it was death by sport coat. I was like, <laughs> what is the female equivalent of the sport coat? Because no one told dress. me what to wear. No, I'm going to find it. We went down to RTS. We took our team down to RTS Dallas a few weeks ago to hear a lecture by James K.A. Smith mm-hmm. and, and to spend some time down mm-hmm. there. And you could tell the cultural difference uh-huh. between the Baptist world and the and the Reformed world quickly because it was like we had cargo shorts on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's awesome. But, but you know, it, but it's aspirational, isn't it? It is. For young Baptist. Um, well, we have a running joke that if we were dressing for the job we wanted, we would all show up in our bathrobe. <laughs> None of us wants to be employed anymore. Can I just wear sweats today? Uh Well, uh, we're we're glad to have you on the show, Dr. Duncan, and Mm -hmm. thanks for letting us have some fun with you. Uh, Let's start here. What are some of the doctrinal, historical, cultural, philosophical issues that have your attention right now? Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be, this could be intramural among PCA work. It could be, but what's a doctrinal, historical, cultural, philosophical thing that you feel like right now I'm thinking about this? Um, Obviously the doctrine of God has my attention. My guess is everybody around this table has been thinking about this pretty hard for the last several years. The doctrine of the Trinity as a a part of that larger doctrine of God. Huge issue for all of us right now. JT, how much did you pay this man? I know, right? (laughs) I feel like... 
this is JT. JT has been attempting to get a whole season on the Trinity, and I feel like this is, is going to be his linchpin thing. And then we would play the doxology at the end of each episode. Well, yeah, if you had it your way. But, no, why we had you, it God's way, No, I think, I think we all agree with you, but why do you think that? I, I'd be curious kind of what you're feeling or sensing that you're like, I think this is the issue or one of the, the major issues we need to be talking about. Uh, I don't want to get too technical about it, sure. but he, here's what's happened. Over the last century in the evangelical world where there's a high regard for Scripture, there has been an attempt to do exegesis and biblical theology without adequate systematic and historical theology. And it has led to an unmitigated disaster in the formulation of a number of things that are very, very core to Christianity. And and people that we love and revere Mm -hmm. have made huge mistakes yes. in this area. And I, I see a younger generation, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy now, but I'm looking at a younger generation, and it's guys like Scott Swain mm-hmm. yeah. and Mike Allen, and I could list a lot of others, who are, who are working hard to recover a historic Christian doctrine of God and of the Trinity, mm-hmm. and, and then to translate that right. uh, into, in, into what what, what the Christian life looks like. You've written on this. I have. And, uh, and, and that, that is, I mean, I cannot tell you how encouraging this is to me. So that's one area that has my attention, but so does the doctrine of the image of God in man. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like, especially in the American experience, especially over the last 200 years, that uh, we have under-realized the importance of the doctrine of the image of God in man in multiple directions. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, has, it has spilled out into race relations. It has spilled out into manhood and womanhood. It's, it's spilled out in a lot of directions. And I think, I think there's going to be new good work done by young theologians in my lifetime in the area of the doctrine of humanity and the doctrine of the image of God in man. Um, I, I also, I'm very interested at a, a, a cultural wedge that I see appearing in the church, and I see it in the Presbyterian world, the Baptist world, the Assemblies of God world. I could go down a lot of different areas where I see this, where folks over 50 and folks under 40 are looking at cultural issues and the interface between robust, scripturally derived Christian theology and cultural issues from very different perspectives. Yes. Mm-hmm, and sure. it has a, it's occurred to me that uh, it, 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 you don't get into the vagaries of the history of, of Scottish ecclesiology, but uh, if, if you look at a if you <laughs> yeah. look at a chart of Scottish Presbyterianism from 1560 to 1892, it looks like a spaghetti pile. And um, I, I remember a professor of mine in, in Edinburgh saying, "Now, uh, while it is true that the divisions that have happened in Presbyterianism in Scotland since 1892 have largely been over matters of evangelicalism and liberalism." The, the divisions in the Scottish church really from 1690 to, to 1892 were all about the interface between the church and the state. Hmm. And I, I thought about that for a minute and I thought, you're right. Every single one of them were cases where good people who loved Jesus, who had relatively sound theology, who believed the Bible, were confessional in their outlook, differed on how the church ought to respond to the challenge of the state. 
I see the same thing happening with regard to culture today, mm-hmm. uh, where there is um, amongst young people, there is um, an abhorrence for um, sort of the negative cultural war approach of the 1970s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, in the over 50 crowd, there is just a terror at what they see as cultural capitulation right. on the part of younger Christians. And so I'm very interested that we do the best job that we can not to allow voices from the poles Mm -hmm. of either the left or the right to unnecessarily drive us apart in this area, Mm -hmm. but that we work really, really hard to stay together on these things. Because I actually think we need voices from 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 different angles speaking into how we navigate the cultural waters that yeah. we're that we're I mean we're wading into sort of a post-Constantinian era right yeah. and and it, we shouldn't be surprised that that's hard to figure out how to navigate mm. but we need patience with one another and we need to be um we don't need to be quick to throw people over the, right. the side of the boat. Right. And so you're, we're going to need mediating voices and bridge voices or what my colleague Karen Ellis calls transcendent voices mm-hmm. to not to cave in or capitulate or downplay the importance of the Bible and doctrine, but to figure out how to bring people together and make sure that they're actually listening to one another, hearing those concerns, and then figuring out ways to go forward together. So that really has my attention right now. That wow. is a really There's a lot. I want to talk answer. about everything yeah. that you just said. Um, <laughs> I, I, oh, go ahead, Who are please, some Jim. of the voices that you see emerging as those mediating voices? I mean, I, thankfully, I, the Lord is giving us a lot of, of those voices right now. So, you know, theologically, I look out in, into the world, and I do see a person like a Scott Swain right. or uh, a Mike Allen in, uh, in Orlando at, at, at RTS who've, who've been very helpful to help us work through Trinity, Doctrine of God, in, in ways that, that pull people together. I think, you know, Tim Keller has, yes, has really sure. worked hard to, to try. I mean, there is a man who cares about theological orthodoxy, but he's a keen observer of culture. Mm-hmm. And of course, Tim has, a, there are a whole host of folks who have learned from Tim in this generation trying to think biblically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, Karen Ellis is, yeah. is Carl a person, Karen. Uh, you know, Carl's sort of the grandfather of right. the black and reformed movement. And, uh, and Carl speaking into that space has been a wonderfully calming, constructive, edifying voice. Karen, because of her emphasis on world Christianity, the persecuted church, brings to bear perspectives on uniquely American problems that benefit from a larger vision and experience of the of the global church, and I mean, it, I could look in Indonesia at young men like Benjamin Inton, mm-hmm. who's who's trying to uh, deal with issues of religious freedom in a context where in Indonesia radical Islam is on the rise. I can I can point to you people, uh, Maro Meister and Davi Gomez in Brazil, um, and the Fiel folks uh, down there. Um, they're just wonderful things. I keep bumping into. To all around the world hmm. that don't get the headlines, right. you know, mm-hmm. in the in the press, they don't even get attention in our sort of theological neck of the wood 
woods necessarily, but there are good things going right. on underneath the roiling on the surface. And I keep thinking, okay, if I can just kind of be a part of helping keep us walking together right. for a little while, these things will eventually come to the surface and do us all good. Yeah. So. That's good. You know, um, uh, I, I feel like if um, for a listener um, and uh, just, just as a casual observer, you might not think that there's much of a connection between doctrine of God, doctrine of Imago Dei or image bearing and this cultural wedge. But I, but I think that there is, and I think that you probably think there is too. I, I'd be curious just to hear from the table, uh, how helpful can confessionalism be in an age in which the church can be divided over cultural issues? Like, from my vantage point, it seems like there might be uh, a unique advantage to confessional communities. And this is uh, what I mean confessional here would just be churches that are rallied around a shared set of orthodox belief. Mm-hmm. And that that confessional core that might play itself out differently from my Presbyterian brothers and sisters or my ACNA, my Anglican brothers and sisters, uh, but that we can join together as kind of a big tent walking together, as you said, while maintaining our confessional identities and trying to navigate these choppy waters. I really feel like maybe a part of the the unique moment that we're in is that kind of a recovery of some of that confessional identity so that we know the things that really do unite us um, and so that we can greet the things that would seem to divide us together. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think that makes perfect sense. When I went to Southern Seminary to sit down for my PhD interview, I was having a conversation with one of the professors there, David Puckett is his name. He's no longer a faculty member there. And I was asking him about the confessional identity of the school and kind of its background and history. Uh, but he made a point to think about how in kind of the cr- and this is seven, eight years ago now. So, so, much, so much has changed in the last seven or eight years. But he made the point that uh, in a Christian, uh, what we would have understood as a kind of a Christian cultural moment, the things that distinguish uh, each other is actually second, third, or fourth tier issues if you think about mm-hmm. theological triage. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have a First Baptist Church or a First Presbyterian Church or you have an Assemblies of God and an Anglicanism. And those are important doctrinal distinctions and differences where we would say these are worthy of consideration and worthy of perhaps dis- of, of serious disagreement. Over. Right. But in a secular moment or in an increasingly post-Christian culture, it's actually the, th- the thing that distinguishes us from the world isn't what we think about baptism, but it's what we think about the doctrine of God. Right. Or it's what we think about the exclusivity of Jesus. And so that doesn't make those second or third tier issues go away, but it does give us this opportunity to recover yep. the confessional movements that have governed the church for the last 2,000 yep. years. Doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of scripture, those kinds of things. But I think that our people, because we have made them be this way, our people are more interested in secondary issues. Exactly. We have we've pointed them that direction. Well, that's where you, we've catechized You've made them. an observation, JT, that just... You know, we were talking about our membership class here, even mm-hmm. just a few years back, and how we would have people come through our membership class who could who, who could describe the things that set us apart from other churches, but they couldn't have talked their way through our statement of belief. They right. they could not have articulated orthodox belief, right. and many of them were functional heretics. You know, yeah. and, and not just because we haven't taught we, them. That's on us. Yeah, uh, so the, yeah, we, irony. we haven't. And so, and I think we you know we're coming out of this period of time where. We, we had the luxury, so to speak, of, of quibbling over what made my church different from your church. And right. I even find, because we're, we're in the Bible Belt here, people are still shopping around based on their different, these secondary and tertiary issues of where they feel the most comfortable. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and looking for ways to divide among ourselves. And I just, I, I, those days are behind us. It's, yeah. it's time for us to teach well the essentials mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and look for ways to partner with those who, who have differences with us on secondary and tertiary issues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So in this moment where you have, uh, there are big issues at, at, at play, whether people are aware of it or not, or in regards to doctrine of God, there are unique opportunities to further explore doctrine of image bearing. And then there's this kind of cultural wedge moment that we're in. One of the things that we're all passionate about is the role of catechism and the role of catechesis for our people. And that one of the ways that we want to equip them is not just to tell them what to think or to not think about a given set of cultural issues, but to train them up and how the church has historically thought about the biggest questions. And we've uh, historically, we've called that catechesis. Yeah, teaching. Uh, teaching. Yeah. It's been training and teaching. And so for Presbyterians in your sphere or in the, the students that you're training up, is catechesis, is catechism still important? How does it work itself out in homes and churches of Presbyterian families and communities? It is important. It's probably not as important as it was 50 years, 100 years, 150 years ago. We've been under the same cultural pressures that you encounter in the Baptist world, in the non-denominational world. it's, It's remarkable the continuities that exist between our particular constituencies. You know, we're 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 swimming in the same soup. We're dealing with the same trends. There was a time when Baptists, Southern Baptists in particular, had a very strong emphasis on training union mm-hmm. and equipping Baptists with distinctively Christian Orthodox and Baptist theology was a, that was a big deal in right. Baptist churches, and that's sadly gone the way of all flesh in many many places. So mm-hmm. we've we've had the same kinds of tendencies. But and by the way, uh, anybody listening who say if if if, if catechesis sounds a little Catholic, Baptists should be very encouraged that really the, that that language came into Christian parlance in preparing converts for baptism. Yeah, I think that's the, right. the, the it, was, it was a it was a concern to make sure that if somebody's going to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and be baptized as a believer, that they actually understand Christian theology. That's right. And yeah. so early Christian theologians. And don't worry, we're coming back to that, Doctor. Yeah. Doctor. <laughs> early, early Christian theologians started preparing manuals to actually teach people. Christian theology. So one of them was written by a, a, a man named Irenaeus, mm. who was the pastor of a church in Lugdunum, Lugdunum or Lyon in, in Gaul, in what is now southern France. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a little book called Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Yes. And it's basically a biblical theology of the Bible in about 100 pages that was designed to teach converts to Christianity who were coming for baptism mm. and uh, so that they would know the whole Bible. Bible story and how it hangs together and how the Old and New Testament uh, relate. And so this is a very, very ancient thing. Baptists and Presbyterians were doing this in the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, and then the 20th century hits, and all of us sort of downplay Hmm. this aspect for a whole variety of reasons, downplay this aspect of teaching. This would have been an important thing happening in homes and in churches in both Baptist and Presbyterian context. But it is, you know, we, in, in the Presbyterian setting, we have set catechism forms, like there's there's one that was written in the 19th century called the Children's Catechism, mm-hmm. one that was written in the 17th century called the Shorter Catechism. I, I memorized both of those as a child. Mm-hmm. And we actually require seminary students who come to RTS to memorize the Shorter Catechism, again, to give them the language of Zion, 
the technical language of systematic theology, and then the the clear explanatory uh, ability that comes out of understanding what those questions and answers really mean. Hmm. And so the the catechism is a way of summarizing basic Christian doctrine. Uh, and even before people fully understand all that a catechism question means, it actually supplies them with the language, the categories, where they can understand it later. Right. Uh, I mean, I can, I can remember moments when I understood for the first time a catechism question that I had memorized 10 years before. Yeah, I love that. We, we talk about that with our kids sometimes. All the time. Absolutely. And so it actually gives you rails on which you mm-hmm. can go go and grow. And uh, it's encouraged in the home. We do it in Sunday school, um, in the uh, Uh, children's Sunday school. And um, so it's it's woven into this. We even do it in officer training because you you have so many people that are preparing for uh, work in the church Mm -hmm. who haven't come from a reform background. And so we'll do it in the course of officer training. Yeah. One of the things I wasn't expecting in catechizing, I've th- I might have, may even have said this story on the podcast before, I can't remember, but uh, we were teaching, I guess this wasn't strictly catechism in terms of question and answer, but we were trying to teach memory verses uh, to my little boy, Thomas. He was two and a half at the time, three, and th- the village was doing this. It was Psalm 115.3. Oh, yeah. Uh, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And they put it to this beautiful song. Our, our, our worship team here and our uh, little village team does a fan- kids village team also does a fantastic job with this. And I was, I had a, you know, you have those days in ministry where you're just like, oh man, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, you know? And I actually got home from work. I was sitting in the front room by myself, just kind of having a, a moment where I was like, okay, Lord. Like, I'm going to go be a Presbyterian. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I was texting. I was texting. You were looking at suits. You were, you were looking <laughs> at suits <laughs> online. Like, oh, Sport coat. Where's my navy blazer? How much do khakis cost? <laughs> uh, and my little boy has no idea exactly what that passage means. And he comes bounding down the stairs singing to me, our God is in the heavens. He d-. And it just, I mean, I just, you know, because the Lord met me in that moment through, through scripture that my son was singing to me and God reminded me, I'm in the heavens. I do all that I please. I'm in yeah. control. I mean, it was just this moment. So it's certainly catechism is, is this kind of this one way movement of perhaps more mature yeah. Christians teaching a younger generation. But then there are those moments where God reflects back to you. Yeah. I'm still teaching you. You're still so in true. catechism. You're still under no, there, the teaching. There are two the wonderful truth. stories that we love to tell about catechism like that. There's, a, there's an occasion when Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist, mm-hmm. is in London preaching a series of evangelistic meetings, and a man follows him back to the home where he's staying with some urgent spiritual questions. And one of them is, can you explain prayer to me, Mr. Moody? I mm. don't understand it. And you know you know how it is. You've been preaching your heart out, and somebody <laughs> asks you a question like that, and you're trying to organize <laughs> right. your thought. I'm going to explain prayer to this guy. <laughs> and the little girl who, who is the daughter of, of, the, of the, the man who owns the home where... Moody is staying, comes bounding down the stairs, and she hears the question, what is prayer? And she just, she says, prayer is a, lisp, is a lifting up of our desires unto God in accordance with his will in the name of Jesus. And, and suddenly Moody says, ah, the catechism. God bless the catechism. And then he just, he goes off from there to explain prayer to the man yeah. using the catechism question that this, this, this girl has just quoted. There's another famous story that... Um, 
in the late 19th century, two men were in a western town in the United States where there was a great commotion going on. They were both officers. One was a senior officer, one was a junior officer, and they were walking towards one another in this town while all this commotion was going on. And as they as they passed one another, they both looked at one another and, and, and saluted. And then they, they passed, and then they both stopped and turned around and looked back at one another. And then they came back together. And the senior officer uh, comes up to the junior officer and puts his finger in his chest and he says, what is the chief end of man? Oh, man. And the junior officer says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, sir. <laughs> and the senior officer said, I thought you were a shorter catechism boy. <laughs> and the other, the, the junior officer says, why, sir, that's exactly what I was thinking of you. And partly that they had, they had seen how both of them were calm mm. and steady and confident in the midst of all this mm. commotion. And they'd wondered whether they were Christians and they'd mm. wondered about their training. And they, they found two people who had been reared mm. on the shorter catechism. So we love to tell those stories about how that comes back again mm-hmm. later in life. There's no doubt well and i to uh to come back to this these issues that you 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 said i think that there there, there's a timeliness to these issues doctrine of god image bearing and this kind of cultural moment that we're in and some of the issues and how people are processing it i feel like one of the unique values that we have seen particularly because all three of us uh, have been in some way or another for the last few years giving a lot of thought to adult education Mm -hmm. right into adult training that's what we do of uh, of people and now as a pastor i get to think about that for the uh, for this church that i'm trying to lead and trying to build and as we think about um, adult education, a lot of times we use the language of catechism because for, for our people, you can tell they really want to honor the Lord. Mm-hmm. They do. They desperately want to honor the they Lord. They want to know their Bible. They want to know their Bible. And they want to make, they want to filter things that they're encountering through the grid mm-hmm. of what's true about God, who he is, what he has done, and how we are to respond to him. And yet there just seems like it's hard for them to put the pieces together. Right, because they have they've got a bucket of a lot of true things about God, and we've really been trying to advocate and think about how do we build environments to help put all those true things about God together, so that there is a good filter, and that they're not just um, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine and every cultural issue. And I know, Jen, for you, this has been a huge reason why biblical literacy. Uh, JT and I talk a lot about the the, the doctrinal side of catechism. Mm-hmm. Not that you're not for that, but you have put your chips in the basket. But we do like to fight over it. A we little do. Bit. Yeah, we do. Uh, Who's got the bigger house fire? Is basically what <laughs> we're always true. fighting over. Yeah, yeah every According time. According to Dr. Duncan, a few minutes ago, <laughs> you do. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> how can how? Uh, it's not that. It's not that that they're reading their Bible, right? It's how you read your Bible. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, you know, you you talked about, uh, maybe we talked about this before we even started the program, but we've lived in a patch of evangelical history where in our neck of the woods, in the name of reaching out to uh, draw in the unchurched, we mm-hmm. have essentially de-churched the church. Right. One right. of the exactly big right. areas we've done this in, in is biblical knowledge, yeah. mm-hmm. because the the idea was nobody wants to listen to expository sermons. Mm-hmm. They want to they want to listen to practical, spiritual, you know, quick monologues, kind of platitudes, platitudes. You know how to how to be a better 
friend, right. you know, how to have a better marriage, how to be successful in life, et cetera. And they, they don't want exposition. And, and and then we turn around 50 years later and evangelicals don't know their Bibles mm-hmm. and we go, well, what, what's happening to us? Right. You know, and, and, and that's that's a part of this story. And, and I, I will say, I've taken my leadership team around to four seminaries now. Everywhere we go, uh, th- they tell us, People come to seminary knowing less Bible and less right. theology than ever before. And these are highly motivated people. Right. These, these are, are the men and women who, who are serious about the Bible. On their own. They want to know the Bible. <laughs> They're ready to pay a lot of money yeah. to go to theological seminary, and they don't know much Bible. Yep. Yeah. And and that's that's on us. That's on the churches. We've not done a good job of biblical literacy or of doctrinal categories. Right. Well, and we've, we, we've been talking about this a lot, about the the what has happened as we all got comfortable with um, feeling like Christianity was kind of the main thing in the United States, at least, is that you developed a distance between the person on the platform and the person in the pews. You had that expert-amateur divide um, where the experts are the ones who tell us what the Bible says or what doctrine is, and the people in the seats just take it in. And what things like catechism do are they begin they begin to bridge that divide that has come back into place by saying, hey, you people in the seats, this is how you can join in this work. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're entering into a time where... Um, People in general in societies are less connected than they used to be. And then within the church, we've seen the same thing happen. And what a great connecting point for us to all have a common articulation around what, uh, I mean, you need it just for the for the, the well-being of the church, but also just in terms of our relational depth with one another to say, yeah, these are the things that we believe. And that's, you know, this the individualism factor too in churches over the last 20 or 30 years has also been pretty devastating right. yeah. in terms of, of being able to have any kind of learning environments where we all agree to these are the things that matter. Right. But I think we're going to see a, ret- I really do think we're seeing a return oh. to that. People are tired of trying to figure it out on their own and feeling like someone needs to tell me what this means. Oh, I agree 100%. I think that's why, uh, you know, there is, uh, I don't know that we'll ever make Sunday school cool again, but we've certainly made it valuable again. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a sense in which people understand, oh man, we jettisoned this thing way too quick. Call it whatever you want. We we jettisoned a mechanism that was lacking the content that it needed to have, but, Mm -hmm. but the mechanism, man... I mean, if I could snap my fingers and get Sunday school back, I'd be so happy. If but anybody we... can do it, you can, Jen. <laughs> it's true. It's true. One of the things I've noticed, so to kind of back to catechism, so I'm walking Thomas, I think I've mentioned this before, through New City Catechism right now. Mm-hmm. He's four. Uh, he's on question, we've gotten through question 10 right now, which is incredible. I mean, think about this. He's not four. He'll be four on Tuesday. He has the Ten Commandments memorized. Yeah. Like, it's just the, their little minds mm-hmm. are traps. You know, it's just, he just it's captures true. this stuff, which is incredible. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm going to wait till my kids, eight, nine, ten, like, no, 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 so no, no. So easy no. when they're young. No, they start it yeah. now. It actually might be easier to capture their yeah. attention and their imagination now. But one of the things I've realized is catechism and perhaps the 17th, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Dr. Duncan, is it, uh, parents weren't, uh, I'm, I want to make sure I say this the right way. They weren't risking social capital for their kids in catechism as much as perhaps we are now. So here's an example of that. I think about this question every time I do this with Thomas. I'll do it. I'll do it tonight with him. This is question four from the New City Catechism. This is the children's version. How and why did God create us? And the answer is this: God created us, male and female, in His own image to glorify Him. And I think about catechizing my son in image bearing, understanding why God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. 
And I know that in two, three, four, five years, and perhaps for the rest of his life, depending on cultural trends, that idea is going to be viciously attacked. Yeah. Right, and he is going to be uh, probably an if if he continues to believe this, Lord yeah. willing, he'll be an anomaly, an outsider, uh, societally and culturally. Yeah. How should we think about catechizing our children into distinctly Christian beliefs and orthodoxy, in light of a cultural moment where they actually might lose major yeah. social relational capital? Yeah. Well, I think one one thing is is it's really important now to let even our very young children know that the truth that they've just learned in those questions is dynamite. Mm-hmm. It is explosively powerful. And, and, and boy, will you see it if you say that truth in certain settings right. in our culture. That's right. You know, it, things will blow up around you. But here's the other side of that. I, I'm, I'm thinking right now of Leanne Sherrod, um, who married my good friend Bill Moore, and she was the Bible uh, teacher at the First Pres Day School for many years. Uh, when she herself was a, a, a little girl studying at First Pres Day School, sh- she and her family were members of a liberal church where the Bible was not believed. And one day, uh, they were they were driving home from church, and they were remarking on something the pastor had said in the sermon. And she looked up at her dad, and she said, what the pastor said is not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> she was in second grade. And she had learned that from Mrs. Marion Ware, who taught, you know, two generations of students at First Pres Day School. That actually led to the conversion of that entire family. That's incredible. She had come to faith in Christ because Mrs. Marion Ware had been teaching her what the Bible said. Mm -hmm. And then Leanne was the first of her whole family to come to faith in Christ. Her dad became an elder in the church. Her mother became a pillar in the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it all started with, with a little girl who knew what the Bible said just speaking that truth into thin air and just watch what the spirit does so i I do think it's important to let our children know now look we we, we're not there are a lot of people out there that don't think what our family thinks Mm -hmm. and you need to understand that some people will react very strongly to that and so you want to make sure that when you say those things you say them lovingly yep to other people. You also recognize that they, they're not going to see things the way you see them. I, I think we have to prepare our people with sort of a sociology of knowledge so hmm. that they they know what the ramifications are going to be for them believing certain right. things so that they're not so they're not surprised when they encounter pushback. I think that's one of the things that happened with children as the culture started to change. And they started coming to their parents with questions about, hmm. hey, I you know, there are a lot of people out there that don't think like we think. And and what they got from their parents was simply, well, the Bible says that, believe it anyway. Mm-hmm. And now that's a wonderful truth at one level, but at another level, it left them, okay, well, could you help me on that? Right. And a lot of times parents didn't know enough to How help, to help them. Right. Mm-hmm. And they didn't understand the kinds of questions that were being asked. It was interesting. I was talking to Tim Keller. He said, I really think that's how um, Redeemer New York got so many um, Asian members who were graduates of Ivy League schools because mm-hmm. they were out of, you know, Asian, Asian Americans are, are not, uh, they, they do not have the tendency to imbibe the kind of pure secularism that, that 
people that look like me do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so their homes are often filled with religious piety. But a lot of the Asian Americans who went to Ivy League schools encountered the kinds of secularism that are, are dominant in that, that right. part of the culture. And they would go back to their home churches and they would want some answers from parents and pastors that they weren't hearing. And, and Tim said, because I was preaching expository messages, but with an apologetic angle trying to answer those kinds of mm-hmm. questions, I ended up with a lot of Asian Americans coming to Redeemer wow. Church in New York because they were, they were, oh, so that's why we think that. Oh, so that's why we still think that even though the culture doesn't like that. And so mm-hmm. I think parents need to be ready to have those kinds of good conversations with yeah. their children. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. We can't let you go without talking about infant baptism. And so, uh, this is the good stuff. Uh, Hang on, I'm going to get Mark Dever on the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to call in some extra support here, some air support. Kyle is practically an infant himself. So. Um, oh, my gosh. My age, Dr. Ducky, comes up pretty mm-hmm. regularly on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about baptizing babies. I mean, what am I missing? <laughs> like, I mean, uh, what... what What's the what's the thing here? Why 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 am I why am I off? In other words, Kyle wants to know when Presbyterians are going to start taking the ordinances seriously. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my big question. I'm looking for you to give an account. I'm no. just eating popcorn over here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, no. Uh, I guess uh, I'm asking in a silly way, but so we are pe- uh, so Credo Baptist, but want covenant theology. Yeah. And, and and so like and and typically employ that kind of yeah, hermeneutic we, we use, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gentry and Wellam's Kingdom Through Covenant. That's that's uh, kind right. of the paradigm that we've mm-hmm. used here. It's been super helpful for our students. Yeah, and incredibly formative on on us personally. So are uh, are we those who want to embrace the, the a covenantal perspective but not baptize infants? Are we the inconsistent ones? And I want you to speak candidly. We're, well, we're, we're not going to be Remember, offended. historically, Baptists and Presbyterians both embraced covenant theology. Right. So if the, 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 the major uh, Baptist theological document of the late 17th century was the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is modeled on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It had been written about 
30 or so years earlier. Mm-hmm. So in 1689, the Baptist ad- adapted that Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646, and it became a very widespread uh, document used in Baptist churches in America. It was adopted in a, another form at Philadelphia in 1742. And so in terms of theology, biblical theology, doctrine of the Christian life, there is there is a tremendous amount of overlap between Baptists and Presbyterians because right. of that unique strand. So when you read C.H. Spurgeon, um, his own account of covenant theology, I mean, I, I quoted at the beginning of my covenant theology uh, course, mm. uh, Spurgeon says that, that you, basically you can't understand the Bible unless you understand the covenant. Sure. Right. And um, so covenant theology is something that actually Baptists and Presbyterians have shared for much of our time. Now, what happened is, interestingly, with both Baptists and Presbyterians, and I do know that we are in Flower Mound, not far from Dallas, Texas, right. and at Dallas Theological Seminary, this thing called dispensationalism uh, started being promulgated, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, that had a profound impact on the biblical theology of both Baptists and Presbyterians, as well as Bible churches. And so a lot of Baptists would, would view covenant theology is something alien to Baptist theology, mm-hmm. when in fact it's much older and has a much longer pedigree than dispensationalism right. does in mm-hmm. Baptist life. So uh, I, I would say Baptists at their best embrace covenant theology. Now, the difference between Baptists and Presbyterians is that Baptists view the new covenant as having a, 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 a fundamental change in ecclesiology, in the doctrine of the church, and especially in the membership right. of the covenant community in distinction from the old covenant. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a lot of that is based on how Baptists understand Jeremiah 31, 31 right. to 34. Right. As a Presbyterian, the simplest way that I can explain why Presbyterians believe in infant baptism, as well as adult-believing baptism for those who were converted to faith in Christ, why do we believe in what we might call covenant baptism, is because Presbyterians see the New Testament repeatedly say that Jesus' work was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Mm. And that's explicitly articulated in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gives his command, repent and be baptized for the promise is to you and your children and all who are afar off. And at that point, Peter is actually repeating the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 17. And he's saying that this the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And now it's available to Jew and Gentile in Christ. And the promise is still to you and your children. And in Genesis 17, it's, and all who dwell in your tent, whether they're born of a foreigner or not, in Acts 2, because the whole picture of Acts is this expanding of the gospel to the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. to the ends of the earth, to all who are afar off. So from a Presbyterian standpoint, I would simply say, we believe that believers and their children are a part of what God is doing in the new covenant covenant of grace because Jesus came to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Jen, why are you smiling so big? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> <clears throat> well, yeah, when we did our 
podcast on baptism a while back, I did my best to play devil's advocate because we needed someone in the room to play the role. <laughs> and Kyle, I mean, hang on. Kyle, Kyle was so amped up about being gave, a Baptist. He's the we most gave Kyle Baptist. A nickname. Baptist I've got, we need to make sure <laughs> has some staying power. I, I, I can I can literally talk with Dr. Duncan about what he just said for the next four days. Yeah. I know you could. Yeah. And it would be fantastic. Yeah. We gave Kyle a nickname just so you know. We call him Capti Bapti. Cap- <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but I was pointing Hashtag out to my for all you knowing faith listeners. Captain pointing Bapti. out to my friends that the Baptists often face some hurdles when it comes to teaching children mm-hmm. because yes, we, we yes, are so unclear on when it is appropriate to share with them the truth of the gospel or to even speak of things like sanctification. Obedience right. can be a real stumbling block uh, on the on the lips of Baptist parents because they think, how can I call a child to obedience who is perhaps not a believer? Right. And a lot of hand-wringing over warrant, mm-hmm. like yes. warranted sound, like, yeah. oh, oh, what are all of the little mm-hmm. uh, evidences here, mm-hmm. right? Checking, and how many, how many evidences do I have to stack up? Right. Yep. Uh-huh. Proclamation of the law, proclamation of the gospel. How, there's, there's a lot of really technical issues yep. here. Yeah. One of the most interesting places I've seen it, one of the most low-level places I've seen it is with a fear of teaching your children to apologize when they have done something wrong because it might not be a genuine profession of repentance. And so, um, you know, without baptizing babies... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting choked up. Without without <laughs> baptizing babies, I think we need to remind our Baptist friends that that is a that is a form of catechizing There's your no child. You right. give them the language, and you pray that the Lord gives them the motive. Form as they virtues grow. in them as early as right. you can. Right. Right. So anyway, I was there for you even when you weren't here, Dr. Duncan. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Um, oh, man. Can I ask one question? Yes, you can. Okay, great. I know that we're oh my gosh, this is going to be a longer Kyle. episode, but I just have so many. Um, so, uh, okay, so... If the promise, uh, the promise given to Abraham, the promise that Christ, uh, the, all of the blessings that Christ has secured, yeah, um, is there a way of reading those promises um, uh, that is more for this people, for this covenant community, as opposed to individual households? See, that's where that's where I kind of get caught up when I when I read the ble- uh, the promises to Abraham. Am I reading it wrongly to think? Am I reading it wrongly to feel like maybe the emphasis is not so individualistic on every child or every member of the household, but when, when the blessings are given to you and to those who are coming after you, that this is the sense in which God is summing up that these blessings are for his covenant people, whoever those covenant people might be? Well, well of course, that's, there, there, that's always true at the level of election. I mean, partly mm-hmm. what you're asking is you're asking about the interface of God's covenant promises with the doctrine of election, who, who's chosen, who is not, who responds in faith, who right. doesn't. And that dynamic is always there. there. The only way to respond to a biblical promise is by faith. Right. Um, in order to effect its blessings. Right. Uh, the, the, if, you, if you don't do that, the, the blessings are not affected. And even if you go back and you look at the Abrahamic covenant of, of, of Genesis 17, the very first child circumcised in the Old Testament was Ishmael. Right. Who, who were told in that very context goes to the east and dwells against his brethren. There's no indication that, that Ishmael embraced these promises that were entailed in circumcision. Then, of course, Isaac is circumcised when he's eight day old. Uh, Ishmael was a little bit older. Isaac was, was circumcised as an infant. And, of course, through Isaac comes the promised line. Right. In the New Testament, by the way, with baptism, it's the same. You know, one of the 
first people baptized by name in the New Testament is Simon Magus, you know, who turns out to be an unbeliever. So there's nothing magical sure. with rites. The uh, covenant signs or sacraments or ordinances, as Baptists generally prefer to talk about, because sacrament sounds a little spooky in Roman Catholic. <laughs> it's actually a great word. It's, it is. It's we sacramentum yeah. is a word that meant the, the epaulet or the badge that would have been worn on a Roman army officer's uniform. And so it, that's a, it's actually a good word for a sign. Mm-hmm. It also could be used with an oath that was taken mm. uh, by a Roman military officer. So it needn't have any sort of baggage of sort of ex opere operata, you know, right. by doing it, boom, right. magically you're, you're regenerated or something. But uh, those covenant signs are all given in the Bible to confirm promises. And all the promises of God in the Bible are spoken to faith. Mm. So Presbyterians are just as interested in the individual responding in faith as as Baptists are, we are conversionists. After all, we right. we, we know that only the Holy Spirit can make a Christian. But do and, you guys yeah. write dates in the front of your Bibles too? <laughs> so, I so bet I, Presbyterians don't even write in their Bibles. <laughs> no, Presbyterians do write in their Bibles. No, usually not the dates. But, uh, uh, but you know, it, on on that front, it's interesting that my friend Mark Dever, um, who's maybe the best personal evangelist that I've ever met. Uh, I, I was with him probably a couple of years ago when a young man that they had been bearing witness to for a long time came to faith in Christ, made a profession of faith. Mm. And I was in the room when some of the interns came in to say, hey, so-and-so has made a profession of faith. Isn't that wonderful? He's a brother in Christ. And Mark's response was, we'll see. <laughs> and I, I thought, wow, because Mark Mark's goal is not to get somebody to write a date down in their Bible. Sure. He wants to see them cross mm-hmm. the finish line into glory, right. you know, mm-hmm. and it's a long road from that profession of faith to glory. Well, that's a, that's, by the way, that's, that's a wonderful covenantal way right. of looking at the whole Christian life. You know, it's wonderful when that first, when the light finally comes on and somebody comes home to Jesus. That's a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. thing. But pastors... We, we all want them to make the whole journey home. Right. And that's just the first step along the way. That's right. So from a Presbyterian standpoint, uh, the, you know, the, the, the God working generationally is something that he has always done. You can, you can see it with Adam. You can see it with Noah. You can see it with Abraham. You can see it with Moses. You can see it with David. In every single one of those administrations, there is a strong emphasis on God working familially and generationally. That does not mean that everybody in the generation is a believer or that everybody in the family is a believer. And what I see in the New Testament is just a continuation of that. Even the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will tell you that 94% of the Christians in the world have come to faith in Christ either through their family or through a friend, Hmm. which seems to indicate that normally things operate familially and generationally. And so Presbyterians don't see any contradiction between that reality and the application of baptism to the children of believers. Okay. I I, I need you to sign on the dotted line that you will come back one day. And <laughs> I, will, I think that was Dr. Duncan's gentle way of saying, drop and give me 20 push Well, I know. <laughs> no. Um, I, uh, I want him to have I, I want him to have the last word on this because I'm afraid if I ask him another one, he's going to mic drop me. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want that. Um, 
Um, listen, Dr. Duncan, it has been an absolute joy having you on. Yes. Yeah, thank it's been you. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. See you next time. Grace and peace.